Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. So welcome to this episode of Tudor's Dynasty's series on Mary I, England's first crowned queen regnant hosted by me, Johanna Strong. I am finishing up my PhD at the University of Winchester about Mary's legacy. And this week, I'm joined on the podcast by Peter Stefel. Peter is a PhD student at the University of Kent, researching contemporary Marian portraiture and imagery. He'll be familiar to Tudor's Dynasty fans after his blog post, Queen and Mother Mary I, the Lone Behind the Legend, and his expert talk for Patreon patrons. Today, Peter will be talking to us about how Mary saw herself as a queen and a woman. So let's get started. So Peter, it's wonderful to have you with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing more about all of your really interesting research. It's always exciting to hear. <laughs> Thank you. So we'll it's get, an honor. We'll get started uh, with a few general questions just to get our listeners kind of ready and, and in the mindset of Mary in England. How did Mary generally see herself as a queen? Kind of how how would she have perceived her own kind of status and power? Yeah, that's a really good question, Joe. And also we have to remember, before Mary, you only had the Empress Matilda as sort of the first queen regnant, shall we say, of England. Obviously, you then had Lady Jane Grey, but obviously that's very controversial. Was she queen? Was she not queen? So for argument's sake, we'll just say Mary was the first to be, because she was the only woman to be, first woman to be crowned in her own right at Westminster Abbey. So she she succeeded in doing it. As a, as a queen, obviously, it was a unique situation because she was both king and queen. She was both the ruler and, you know, the justice, but she was also the female side of that. She was the compassionate, the merciful, the one who intercedes on your behalf. So as a woman, being a king and queen, you sort of have to merge the two together. And that's just if, if, if you know, if the situation in England had been normal before the Reformation, if she'd just been Catholic. Obviously, since the Reformation, she was has to be portrayed as this sort of Catholic saviour. You had, you know, you had Edward and before that, Henry, more Henry. And England had become this Protestant haven. You know, the Protestants sort of, they were winning the war, shall we say. And you just had the Edwardian policies and Somerset and Northumberland. So Mary had to portray herself as Veritas, shall we say, the goddess. She's the new truth. She's the daughter of time, which obviously later goes into her motto. 
So she's the true successor, the bringer of peace. And it's not just her say, think of that. There were countless um, authors at the time saying the same sort of thing. Um, one example is Robert Winfield, Vita Maria, um, which records the initial stages of her rule. And he calls Mary sacred, holy queen. I mean, he even goes on and says she's the new virgin Mary. So there is that reverence towards her as being England's queen, England's saviour, England's mother, shall we say. Um, John Seaton also writes, and so does William Forrest. They always make this link with the Virgin Mary. You know, this is this woman who's nothing special, really. She's not special, but she's been called into a position of power. And she's there to save her children, basically, from the heresy that is currently engulfed in England. To begin with, obviously, Mary's portrayed as, she, I mean, she's a virgin queen. She's the first virgin queen. Everyone always thinks about Elizabeth as the virgin queen, the mother of her people. Well, actually, Mary was the first, <laughs> the first one to do that. Mary's, you know, she's, she, she knows she's royal. You know, there's no doubt about it. She knows where she stands. She knows her inheritance. You know, she does have that Tudor fire, but she's also got that Castilian and Spanish spirit from her mother and obviously her grandmother, Isabella of Castile. So she has a lot of powerful female blood in her as well as obviously her father, Henry VIII. I guess incredibly interesting to see just how much she pulls on that religious imagery and then the political imagery and then just the idea of she's not, she might be the first crowned female ruler in England, but she certainly positions herself as being in a line of female rulers, which I think is one thing I think in, in English history, we often look at Elizabeth I as being, you know, she's the next in the line, but really Mary positions herself as kind of, this is, this is just normal, accept it. I am the queen and the king, as you say. Well, exactly. I mean, you know, going, going from that, you know, the Regal Act of 1554, that cements that position saying that a queen is as, you know, a queen regnant is as powerful as any king before her. So she is the first to categorically state this is how it works. If a woman becomes queen, inherits the crown, there is no difference between her and her male predecessors. And obviously then Elizabeth then adapts that. Absolutely. She is, I think, kind of the, the groundbreaker for so much of what we identify as Elizabethan. But actually, we can push that back five years and go, well, really, it's Marian. <laughs> exactly. So we, it's always so nice to kind of look at these trends and go, hang on a second, we can push that back a little bit. Yeah, and it's, you know, you do start to wonder, because once you start doing that, you start seeing all of these Elizabethan ideas, you know, virginity, motherhood, like I keep saying, well, hang on a minute. Even if you compare the two famous speeches, you've got the Mary's Hill speech and you've got Elizabeth's Tilbury speech. If you compare those two, they're very, very similar in their context and how they portray themselves as a queen. Yeah, it's it's one of those, Mary may not have said the words, I mean, Elizabeth may not have either, but Mary may not have said that she has the heart and stomach of a king, but she certainly lived her life with that in her mind, knowing that that was true. Yeah, no, I think even further from that, she didn't need to say that because she knew, and so did everyone else. They knew exactly what she was like. She, they knew she was the daughter of Henry and Catherine. You know, she didn't need to prove herself, whereas maybe Elizabeth had to because of obviously Anne Boleyn. 
yeah, Mary knows she is the daughter of kings. Uh, and that just kind of goes without saying. So yeah, we've seen how kind of Mary portrays herself and understands herself as a queen. But we've also talked about a little bit how she saw herself as kind of a mother to her people. But she also, when she gets married, has this position as a wife and then as a potential mother to biological children. And so how, how did Mary see herself in those more traditional female roles? Well, I think the best way to answer that is really in her own words. So I'm just going to quote a couple of um, sentences from that famous 1554 Guildhall speech. And for your listeners who may not know what, we're, what on earth we're talking about, it's um, in the early days of 1554, um, you had Thomas Wyatt and he led a rebellion against Mary, potentially against the Spanish marriage. Obviously, some people think it's more about religion than the actual marriage. But um, even though Mary was advised to leave London, you know, escape, hide away, she said, no, I'm going to stand my ground. She went to the Guildhall in London and then she gave this wonderful speech in front of a large crowd of Londoners. And it sort of, it turned the, it turned the battle around. And they were enthusiastic. They were, you know, like, yes, we've got to do this. And they, you know, well, they had a crushing victory. <laughs> so I'm just going to quote a couple of sentences from her, which will obviously answer this question. I am your queen to whom at my coronation, when I was wedded to the realm, and to the laws of the same, the spousal ring whereof I have on my finger, which never hitherto was, nor hereafter shall be left off, ye promised your allegiance and obedience unto me. I say unto you in the word of a prince, I cannot tell how naturally a mother loveth her ch children, for I was never the mother of any, but certainly a prince and governor may as naturally and as earnestly love subjects as the mother doth her child. Then assure yourselves that I, being sovereign lady and queen, do as earnestly and as tender, tenderly love and favour you, and I thus loving you cannot but think that ye as heartily and faithfully love me again, and so loving together in this know of love and concord, I doubt not, but we together shall be able to give these rebels a short and speedy overthrow. I think that sort of explains, you know, she is the mother of England, but she's also the wife of England. And it's, it is being told that when she wore her spousal ring, which was the ring which you were given when you were crowned, she never took that off. And that is your, it is your wedding ring to England. So it shows how committed it was to not only being, you know, just a queen and the giver of justice and the lawmaker, but she was a wife of England, as well as obviously Philip later on. But I'm sure we'll talk into some, when we talk about some of the portraits later, it is interesting where each sort of spouse, shall we say, is in terms of her heart. Who's more important, England or Philip? Yeah, I guess that's a perfect transition into getting into some of those portraits and images. Um, so why don't you start with the first one? We're going to go through, I think, a few contemporary depictions and you're going to point out some of what they reveal about how Mary saw herself and how, by extension, we should be looking at Mary. So I will let you walk us through those. And for our listeners, all of these are going to be in the show notes. So you can pull those up and follow along as we're talking through them. 
Brilliant. So why don't we start? So we're going to um, portrait at the Society of Antiquaries. And we believe this may be the first first portrait of her as a queen. So you can clearly see she's in a very regal position. She's standing behind a red cloth of estate. She's wearing this lovely golden gown. And you have a pillar, which is by start beside her. Now the pillar symbolizes strength, stability, and it's very similar to um, Habsburg iconography. Um, but um, yes, yeah, should we should really explain who Hans Ewerth was. He was a um, Netherlandish artist. He um, lived in England and he was given um, citizenship basically under Mary's rule. Um, and he was actually a Protestant. So we always think of this idea that Mary hates Protestants. Well, she did actually, you know, I mean, she favored some of them as long as their religion was kept between themselves. But going back to this portrait, you can clearly see she's standing in this very regal position. Her shoulders are wide. Her gown splits the frame as well. She takes up this space. What's very similar, actually, is she's very similar to her father, Henry VIII. So we always remember his famous Holbein stance, hips on the shoulders, legs apart, codpiece. Well, this is sort of her equivalent to that. This is the female version of it. She is majesty. She's queen. She's protector. She's savior. And we do believe this portrait may have been um, painted around the early days of 1554, January, February, due to the, the furs that she wears. So it's quite significant that she, this painting's around at the same time of White Rebellion. Is this a painting after the rebellion? Is it before the rebellion? Is this to symbolize her motherhood? We're not quite sure. But if we take a look at a couple of the jewels, you notice she wears a cross. Well, we know this was Catherine of Aragon's. So it's a direct link to her mother, not only to the Catholic faith, but to her legitimacy. She's proved she's shown herself as a Spanish princess. You have the um La well, the so-called La Peregrina, which was a gift from Charles and Philip with the large diamond and the pearl. Again, symbolizing her potential, well, her betrothal to Philip, but also her legitimacy. She's, you know, she is a legitimate queen. If we look at her fingers, she wears seven rings. And now this is, we know this is Hans Ewerth because not only does he sign it, but he uses these rings in this same pattern frequently in most of his portraits. Again, showing her, her power, her wealth, her religion. At the bottom of the portrait, there is a reliquary, which used to belong to Henry V. And apparently there used to be a splinter of the true cross, uh, the blood of St. Thomas, as well as other relics. So this is a portrait clearly saying that she's a Catholic. She's going to bring it back to England, bring the true faith back to her people. But she's also a mother. If you notice where her hands are, her hands are by her womb. That's the same place where Henry VIII's codpiece would be. Now, as, as we know, the codpiece was to symbolize fertility and masculinity. Well, by placing Mary's hands on her womb, she's shown her femininity. And she's also shown her potential to be a mother, to produce the savior child. Maybe a subtle link to the Virgin Mary and 
her producing of the Messiah. So yeah, so this is a wonderful, wonderful portrait. It really is. And I know we both separately, but both went to the recent Sotheby's exhibition, and this was on loan from the Society of Antiquaries, and it is just a a stunning portrait. You stand there, and it's one where you almost want to kind of curtsy or kneel and go like this, this is a queen. The just the colors and the, as you pointed out, the pearls and the diamonds, which will look black in portraits because they're often um put onto a black fabric, just in case listeners are looking at it and going, but diamonds are white. Like this isn't right. Um just that that fabulous display of wealth, but that the wealth is tied to family and to marriage and to parenthood and all of those political and personal links. That's absolutely fascinating. Yes, no, I mean, like you said, it was at Sotheby's and I didn't realise this until you told me. So I, I got the first train up there because I've always wanted to see it. And I went in there and yeah, it's, it's in the corner somewhere, but it, it dominates the room. It really does. I didn't realise how large it actually was. And you start, it takes the whole wall up and you, you stand there. I think I was there for about two hours, just, just staring at it. And you see some of the, you know, the other visitors just walking by it. And then some came over and they're thinking, oh, who's that? Who's that? And then obviously, because I was there, I could then explain to them, oh, well, this is Mary the first. This is, you know, what represents and et cetera. I think we were there and they have a half an hour. And you could see that, these people were in, they were in fraud, they're enlightened because they had no idea. Not only, I mean, they knew who she was, like every, you know, everyone knows who Bloody Mary is, but to actually understand the other side of her and to see, oh, so this is what she actually looked like. This is why she portrays herself as she does. And yeah, you know, I think that's the first step to sort of bring, bring her back from the abyss. It's education, you have to educate these people. Otherwise, you'll never be able to remove the epitaph. Completely, completely. It's it's one of those moments. I think Sotheby's had Mary on one wall, and then as you're facing Mary, behind you was a portrait of Elizabeth I. Mm. And when I walked in, of course, kind of, we both naturally would go to Mary. But it was one of those moments I remember being at the Louvre years ago and walking in back when the Mona Lisa was not in her own room and kind of walking to the painting on the opposite wall and just being fascinated because I had always wanted to see this painting and then wondering why everyone was staring at the wall behind mm. me and then ah, oh, the Mona Lisa's behind mm. me. This was kind of that same moment of you just get drawn in and that kind of personal connection. And I think in this case, to be able to, to look into her eyes and kind of to put yourself in 1554 and all of that excitement of, you know, she's in marriage negotiations. She's going to get married. I mean, she doesn't know it at the time, but she's going to get married in July of that year. Like there is so much exciting on the horizon for her and the way she just stands as this regal presence, you can feel it, but it's, 
it's a very royal excitement. Mm. No, you you really do. You really have that sense of understanding her. And it's sort of that she is there. She's present. And that's the power of portraiture. That's why they had these things made. Because this was their equivalent. If they weren't present in the room, the portrait was. And that was, the, you know, people thought that was the same thing. Doesn't matter that much if you were really there. The portrait's there, so you are present. And that is very, very important. You know, when a monarch dies in this, in this period, you had the effigy. And the effigy was still sat on the throne, even when the body was no longer there because it still represented the monarch until the burial. Absolutely. It's this idea, as Ernst Kantorowicz put it in a, in a very academic sense, that the monarch has these two bodies, that one is the personal body, you know, the one that goes to bed and wakes up and needs to eat and wants to go outside and just have fun sometimes. And there's the other that is the monarch. And I think Mary really embodies both of these as many monarchs do oh she really really did and i think that sort of links on to the next portrait so we we're going not to go plan and... this we promise <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so we're going to go in chronological order because i think that's quite interesting to see how things change and how different artists portray her so we're now going to go to the most famous portrait of her everyone knows this portrait it's the first portrait everyone always says, oh, you look at Bloody Mary. Oh, what's this portrait? I, ne I didn't used to like this portrait, but after you start to actually understand what Antonio Moore is doing, I have to say it's, it is one of my favourites now, but I have lots of favourites. My favourite changes every day, so take that with a pinch of salt. So to your listeners who don't know who Antonio Moore is, again, he was in the service of Charles V and Philip, more to Philip II, and he was the Habsburg court portraitist. He was the Hans Holbein for the Habsburgs, basically. Um, he painted all of the Habsburgs. And he, some people disagree with when he actually came to England. Some people think he came with Philip when he arrived in that July. Some people think he came later. And um, the portrait that we're looking at now is in, currently in the Museo de Prado in Madrid. It belonged to Charles V. So this is Charles's copy of this portrait. It, there were three, well, there are at least three contemporary copies, which we'll, we will go into because there are a couple of differences, which is quite significant. Um, and yes, we believe it's dated November, December, 1554. So Mary's married by now. She thinks she's pregnant. And portrait sort of hints at that. So if we take a quick look, quick look she's sitting on a, a lovely a throne. Um, actually, a Spanish scholar has recently is recently believing that the um, the chair may actually be from Catherine of Aragon, which I had no idea about. So there's that again, that cementing of Spanish English alliance, her legitimacy. She's the sole daughter of Henry and Catherine. If we take a look at her, again, she's wearing the same jewellery as Hans Eworth portrayed her with the La Peregrina, or I should say the so-called La Peregrina. It's, um, we're not quite sure whether or not it is. Maybe, may not be. If we actually look at her face, because I always like this with uh, <laughs> Antonius Moore's portrait. So when we think of Mary, we always think 
oh, she must be this miserable lady. She's depressed all the time. She's got a fierce temper. Yes, she did have a fierce temper. But if we take a close look <laughs> at her face, if we look at her smile, she's actually the only Tudor monarch to smile in her portraiture. Now, it's a very small smile, but it's sort of that hint of her youth, her excitement. She's finally married. She's pregnant. She's finally going to fulfill her desire to bring England back to the true faith with this male child which she bears. Again, linking back to the Virgin, whereas, whereas the Virgin bore the Messiah, Mary bore the Messiah for England. Again, Mary's with her lovely blue eyes, bluey grey eyes. She's wearing a lovely loose Murray gown, which is why we think it, she's pregnant at this point, because you, obviously you have to accommodate the swollen stomach. Now, the significant thing about this portrait, which I really want to talk about, is her rings on her hands. Now, as we mentioned before, Hansi Webb always had seven rings on her. Um, Moore does similar thing, but he managed to manages to show the rings in better detail. It's more lifelike. So it's easier to differentiate between them. Now, if we look at her spousal finger, her wedding finger, you notice you've got the um, coronation spousal ring, which is fair enough because she's obviously she's married to England. On top of that, that is her wedding ring. So she's married. So we know this has to be after July 1554. What is significant is they're both on the same finger, but the wedding ring is on top of the spousal finger, the spousal ring, sorry. So the spousal ring is closer to her heart because of the, the belief back then when they believed the vein from that finger went directly to the heart. So her spousal ring and her kingdom comes before her maternal husband, material husband, sorry. She's both wife to England and to Philip. She's a potential mother. So this portrait isn't just of a moody woman. This portrait's of a mother and a wife. Yes, she's not wearing a crown, and some people think she's just seen as a consort in this picture. But I think it's more than that because she never really wears crowns in any of her portraits. She doesn't need to, because she knows who she is. She's the Queen of England. She's the successor of Edward VI. And her rings prove that she is not just a king, but she's also a mother. Again, a mother and a wife. Yeah, and I just like, like this portrait. It is really, really nice. And obviously this portrait was copied thousands and thousands of times. But what is significant is that two English copies of this, which we believe is either by Moore or by his workshop, show us slight difference. So this copy and the Isabella and Stuart Museum was apparently Mary's own copy. So this is how she, you know, she ordered a copy from Moore. Whereas, and if you look at the wedding ring, well, it's not there. There is no wedding ring. Why is I there no admit, wedding ring? <laughs> I was at the Isabella Stewart Gardner. It's in Boston for kind of listeners on that side of the pond. Um, my sister is in Boston and I forced my family to go and see this. And I was on my phone literally just pulling up the pictures and going, I don't remember seeing that many rings. So I'm glad you pointed this out. <laughs> 
I'm not quite sure what they all mean yet, but they must all mean something. <laughs> but yes, no. I mean, just I can't. I'm I'm still just so shocked. No one's really thought about this. No one's looked at it. Why is there no wedding ring? Now, I mean, we could say, oh, it was painted before the marriage. But if we know Moore wasn't here till November, December, or after the marriage, well, there's no excuse why there's why is there no ring? Could it be a mistake? Maybe, but why would you miss that out and have everything else basically the same? It's very, very interesting that Mary's own version of this portrait, she doesn't have her wedding ring. She just has her spousal coronation ring. And it's not, this isn't the only one. If we then look at the um, Duke of North, Marquess of Northampton's copy, again, no wedding ring. Now, was this a copy of the original Mary's? Maybe. You know, they, they do look very, very similar in terms of how they depicted the rose and obviously the missing wedding ring. But it is interesting how the English, <laughs> the English copies do not add, um, talk about Philip at all. There's no reference to him whatsoever, apart from obviously the jewel, which actually, funny enough, and I'm going to be very controversial here, the, um, the, bit, the large diamond, which everyone says was a gift from Charles V, it was their betrothal. Well, there is actually a reference to Charles's brother, Ferdinand, gifting Mary a very large diamond. Maybe, you know, maybe we shouldn't be so quick to just assume it's Charles's diamond. It may have been uh, Ferdinand's. <laughs> you I mean, know, what, but... what, a, what a queen power move to have multiple diamonds that we can't identify. <laughs> Even I know, right? <laughs> oh, I'm not going to just side with Charles. I'm going to side with your brother as well, Ferdinand. <laughs> it's like, you know, she's who knows. You know, unfortunately, we we may never ever we may never know with the power of these things. But it is interesting to think, oh. Because obviously we never we don't actually know what these things look like. We've just got some basic measurements and you know eyewitness accounts of the size of these things. So you know it could be Phillips, uh, sorry, it could be Charles's, it could be Ferdinand's. <laughs> Who knows? But it's funny. It is very funny. And obviously with all of these portraits, she holds the Tudor rose. She's obviously shown her lineage. Um, again, links to the Virgin. She's well in the unmarried ones without the wedding ring. She could still be a virgin. We just don't know. Um, she obviously wears gloves to portray her status and to show that she's a woman. She likes riding. She's a very good rider, actually, from all accounts. So that's our introduction to Antonius Moore. I don't know, Joe, if you want <laughs> to comment on any of these. I just, I absolutely love them. And I think seeing art in person is always different. But I think what strikes me with those ones is. And maybe it's just that she's sitting for all of those naysayers out there. But you just look at it and knowing that it's painted at the end of 1554, you, you can't help but look and kind of go, like, you can see the baby bump. You can see, you can see that she is kind of riding on cloud nine that she has in her mind conceived. And I say in her mind, obviously, because there's a lot of controversy, we can't ever know for sure, but was she pregnant? Was she not pregnant? Was she pregnant and miscarried? Was she 
never pregnant, but had a false pregnancy, um, also known as a phantom pregnancy. It's very complicated. But in those portraits, you can't help but look at her and think, there's definitely something happening that most people would go, well, you know, wait for nine months, there's going to be a baby. <laughs> it's probably why she's sitting down. <laughs> she's pregnant, you know, why would you want a pregnant woman standing up for that long period? <laughs> exactly. <But> anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously that's the very famous one. Everyone knows about that one. Oh, man. I'm sorry, you guys. This is where we're going to have to end part one for today. We'll return soon to part two with Joanna and Peter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty. Dynasty. 